about suicidal ideation and overcoming it. But what we're going to do is we're going to read a story from someone who is a very close friend of mine who suffered with suicidal ideation Mm -hmm. and his story and how he's overcome that and kind of his journey that is still ongoing. Because I think with mental health, it's a process that just never ends. When you have mental health issues, that's your lot in life. And you learn to live with it and you cope and you can live an absolutely happy, healthy, full life. That is 100% possible, but it's a process. And so we're going to, we're going to talk today about this friend's journey. And I really appreciate him uh, being willing to let you read this. Oh, so do I. He he is being vulnerable. Very vulnerable. And I mean, it's incredible. And it's amazing that he shared this story. And he Mm -hmm. first shared it on Facebook, which is a very public place to share it. And I reached out and I said, Hey, I would love to talk about this on my podcast. And he's like, yeah, go ahead. Which is incredible because not very many people are willing to talk about suicide attempts in the manner that he is. He's being very vulnerable. It's a really incredible, uplifting story. And I've known him and his wife for years now. And I mean, they're just, they're both really incredible people to keep going the way that they have through all of this. And, you know, we've talked in past episodes about the stigma and the shame that goes along with talking about mental health issues. And Mm -hmm. so I think, you know, someone willing to, talk about it in this way helps to, you know, uh, decrease some of that stigma and and shame. This is something that many, many, many people struggle with. Absolutely. So kudos to this guy. Hats Mm -hmm. off to him. We really, really appreciate that. So I want to first define what exactly suicidal ideation is. It sounds like, well, the idea of suicide. So let's break that down in terms of mental health and what it actually is. So I think from my perspective, um, maybe there are two levels. I think sometimes a lot of us feel hopeless and that thought might cross your mind, oh, I could end this. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's one level. And that's not a good place to be just to contemplate that, okay, I could end this pain. I think we talked about that last week about a lot of people who are contemplating suicide want is just a relief from the pain. Mm -hmm. But for me, the next step then in that suicidal ideation, and this is what we we check on this in, in session with someone. In fact, I did it today with a client. So you ask about what that's like for them. Are they thinking of self harm is often the way I'll frame it. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I typically won't use the word suicide. And I think if you, for us anyway, if you use the word self-harm, it it becomes a little bit uh, broader in scope. So if you're talking to someone and they say, yeah, I've been thinking about self-harm, then you want to go, you know, deeper to say, well, tell me, what are you thinking of doing? And this gets into, do you have a plan? which is often a question that a therapist or, you know, anyone, if you have a friend who who you think is contemplating suicide, I think it's important to talk about, do you have a plan? Because that then pops it up to a different level. Okay. I think you should always take talk of suicide serious. Yes. Seriously. But if you then say, yes, I have this plan and this is what I'm going to do, Mm -hmm. that takes it to a whole different level. And so that for me becomes that suicidal ideation. I am actually thinking about how I would do this. Okay. That's a dangerous place to be. Absolutely. Contemplating it. 
So let's talk about feeling suicidal versus thinking about death or dwelling on death. I think that as human beings, it's natural for us to think about death. And I know that I've had the thought where I'm driving down the road and I've just had that thought, if I swerved into oncoming traffic, I could kill myself. So it's not that I have a desire to die or that I'm feeling really down and depressed. It's just, I was thinking about death and about suicide but I wouldn't consider myself a suicide risk. But right. those are fairly who's... normal thoughts. Okay. And for some people, it's pretty upsetting that mm-hmm. that they think about those thoughts. But again, it's pretty normal for us to think, okay, if I did this, this would happen. I think that one of the hard things about being a human being is that what sets us apart from all the other animals is that mm-hmm. we can contemplate our own death. Okay. And, you know, no other creature does that. They they can't contemplate their own death. And so there's a therapist who I really like out of Stanford University. He believes that the basis of all anxiety is the contemplation of our own death. And so I I don't know that I believe that, but it's an interesting thought. Yeah, and it makes sense. Yeah, that we, in some ways, for, for most of us, you know, being alive is a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. And so to contemplate your own end is mm-hmm. really could be very anxiety provoking. Anyway, so no, you aren't you you wouldn't be a suicide risk. That's not suicidal ideation. It's just a thought that crosses mm-hmm. your mind and then it goes on and then you probably hit the red light and you stop and you think, okay, what am I going to buy at the grocery store? So yeah, it, yep. it's a fleeting it's a fleeting thought. Right. Which is very different from people who are struggling, you know, with feeling hopeless, with that emotional pain, mm-hmm. that what they want is to be free from the emotional pain, and they consider it a serious option for them. Okay, All right. So those are good differentiations to make the difference between you're a normal human being, you think about death, that's very, yeah. very normal, and feeling deep pain. And like Adrian would describe it, Dr. Adrian Burton Denmark, the desire to die right. is really mm-hmm. what's kind of key here. Okay, yeah. so I am going to go ahead and read this story now. It is a bit of a lengthy story, so I am just going to start from the top, and I'll read it verbatim from his Facebook post, and I will omit any names Okay, is, is what I'll do. All right. So those of you who are friends with, and then he names his wife, are likely aware that I recently spent a week in the behavioral health unit of LDS hospital. Either way, I feel a need to share my experiences before, during, and after that week. So be aware that the rest of this post is going to be very real and sometimes very raw. Since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, specifically when BYU went remote, the health of my brain marched a steady path towards the abyss. While I had moments of relief, they were incredibly brief, and this in itself left me exhausted and low on hope. At one point in the spring, I intended to end my life by suicide. It was late at night and I hit an all-time low, which eventually led me to walk towards I-15 with every intention of walking into traffic. My wife was able to stop me long enough for me to realize that death was not what I actually wanted. I tried to get some help at this point, but we were on Medicaid at the time and in Utah County, that makes it hard to get professional help in normal times. I was able to get a good doctor who helped me adjust my medications. I was also able to get a couple of counseling appointments. I got to a point of relative stability, emphasis on relative. 
After moving to Salt Lake County and getting a job, my descent into the abyss hastened. This was in large part due to the anniversary of a suicide that occurred just outside my classroom during my first winter at BYU. I was fortunate, however, to get connected with the great therapist specializing in EMDR. Real quick for us, tell us what EMDR is. I can describe it, and I think we did at one time. We did talk about it. It's a type of therapy where it's the movement of the eye, you're tracking that. The theory behind it is that you can access, uh, you can more easily access traumatic events. So you have to have someone who's trained in EMDR who who does that. Okay. And EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Right. And so originally it started with the eye movement. There are some variations on it with tapping, things like that. Okay. Okay. So back to the story. This process led to significant improvement for a time, though I was still living on an intense roller coaster. In the spring, I began to slide again. By the middle of May, I was at wit's end. I had needed to use all of my leave almost as soon as I earned it for the duration of my employment to that point just to survive, not because of office or coworkers. They're fantastic. I felt truly useless, pathetic, monstrous, and hopeless. My capacity to handle everyday situations was drained and almost nil. My fight or flight response was constantly on. I dreaded sleep because it merely preceded the start of another miserable day. One Wednesday night, I was done. I set out in my car, intending to find somewhere to end my life. After a while, I began to pray for a miracle, not as a sign that God lives, but as a source of hope because I had none left. I parked next to the Utah Capitol Complex and waited. Within a few minutes, I received a call from my elders quorum president. For those who don't know, elders quorum president is a church leader. He invited me to help him give a a single sister a blessing. Again, that's a church ordinance. For me, this granted me enough hope to make it through the night. The next day, however, I was drained again. After I exploded at the kids for something stupid, I lost all hope again. So I set out towards Bangor Highway intending to die. On my way there, I remember thinking, what are you doing? That was enough to get me to head home. My therapist called and we had a productive session that got me to a safer space. The next day at work, however, I barely felt any better. I did not want to get any worse And my wife and I decided that I needed to go to the hospital. So after leaving work, getting approved to access an extra leave bank and playing with the kids for a while, I packed up and my wife drove me to the LDS hospital. I should note that while I was packing, I reached out to a few people whose love and support helped me muster the courage to press on. This was especially true while I waited in the ER, not wanting to proceed, but knowing that I should. That first night in the hospital was miserable. But the next day, I decided to do everything I could to make it a beneficial experience. The determination helped me to learn some important lessons. First, I learned the importance of compassion in a powerfully transformative way. That first morning, I met a group of women, each of whom would become a friend of mine. Interestingly, our backgrounds were dramatically different, but our shared sufferings and subsequent time in the psych ward led us to have compassion for each other in ways that I have personally only experienced on a few occasions. Both their compassion for me and my compassion for them contributed greatly to my healing. It reminds me of my favorite scripture of my second mission president, Jude 122. 
and if some have compassion making a difference. Compassion made a world of difference for me. Second, I learned the power of sincere gratitude. I began studying hymns of gratitude each night before bed and found it incredibly soothing. I also began to express far more gratitude in my prayers, which helped me experience more gratitude as well as a sense of contentment. I have continued these practices and have found myself more mindful of my emotional state and expressing sincere gratitude for something when I notice negative emotions becoming strong. This has helped me maintain a far more stable state. Since leaving the hospital, I have experienced many stressful situations, yet I have been able to manage them with the grace I have never before experienced. I have also experienced considerable physical pain as I broke my finger and had vascular surgery. These would typically have been very triggering experiences for me. However, I found myself, though stressed and tired, able to take things one moment at a time and have still found reasons to be grateful, including a quicker recovery from surgery and not having more extensive injuries from my fall down the stairs. I am not cured. I continue to need to take my adjusted medications, practice mindfulness, practice compassion, and so many other important habits. I still experience depression and anxiety daily, but my resilience has, for now at least, grown exponentially. I no longer find myself hopelessly staring into the abyss. Rather, I find myself turning to sources of light and hope, most importantly, Jesus Christ and our divine parents. As I do so, I find enough hope to not only survive the day, but also thrive each day. If you are suffering in any way, I sincerely desire relief for you and those who love you. Please seek whatever help exists for your personal sufferings. Please find ways to practice compassion. Please find something to be grateful for. I know that you can find a place to, of reduced suffering. I cannot promise total healing in this life, but I do promise that there are reasons to hope and ways to heal, at least in part. If you know someone who is suffering, step beyond empath and sympathy by stepping into genuine compassion. This is the best way to make a difference. I love you. Okay, let's take a quick break and we will be right back. Hi there, my name is Maya Acosta, and I'm the host of the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions podcast, where I explore ways that we can optimize our health. I learned about the field of lifestyle medicine, which uses evidence-based approaches to prevent, halt, and in even some cases, reverse disease. These are lifestyle modalities, such as using certain foods as medicine, using exercise to reverse disease, managing our stress, and even getting adequate sleep. Join me and the amazing people that I get to talk to as I set out to learn how taking better care of ourselves can help us both improve the quality of life and enhance our longevity. Let's get started. So that's a very powerful statement. You know, when I read it the first time a couple of days ago, I had a lot of thoughts. And just as you were reading it, I wrote down some things that I think are important okay. that we point out for people as they okay. have heard that. And so starting back at the beginning, there were triggers that mm -hmm. set him off the COVID pandemic, which was true for a lot of people. Absolutely. Um, and then the trigger of suicide that it sounds to me like he witnessed or was very close to that happened in the halls at BYU, I guess. Yes. Yeah, so he didn't witness it, but I believe he was on campus because I've talked about this with his wife and it was just something that really hit him because oh, yeah. it really resonated with him. It was someone who was at BYU at the same time. And so it was mm -hmm. kind of like what we talked about last week. It just, you can't help relating to that person in right. some way. Right. And so often for people, there certainly are triggers. Mm -hmm. The other thing that stands out to me, he says, my fight or flight response was constantly on. To me, that's anxiety. And yes. so the anxiety 
you know, can be about many different things, but I think it's important mm-hmm. to point that out. Then the first time that he finds some relief from one of his church leaders, and it's really important to point out community, the importance yes. of community, because often what religion is, uh, or being part of religion, is you're part of a bigger community mm-hmm. that most often it has people who you know are caring about you. And so just this idea of reaching out is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Then the next thing is at some point he and his wife made that decision to go to the hospital. And so as we talk, I think later on, we're going to talk about what do you do, you know, if you're with someone who is expressing that suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm. And I think if it gets to that point where they have a plan and you really start to worry, the, the best thing you can do is get them to a safe place. And often that's going to be in, you know, we call it the psych ward. It doesn't sound mm-hmm. great. But as he goes, you know, so he gets to a safe place. But then the next thing that stands out to me, I mean, this this is where it really there's there's really a lot of important things in that come out in his time at the hospital. Mm-hmm. The idea of compassion is the first thing, which is a theme he comes back to. Compassion and group work. Mm-hmm. So group work for many, many issues can be powerful. And I think I've yes. mentioned that before. Mm-hmm. And so just knowing that there are other people who are struggling with similar issues and they come from diverse backgrounds. It's not really the background that matters. It's that you're all struggling. But what he learned was compassion. And this is a bit of an aside, but I think that's what's missing in the world, in our country. We're missing a lot of compassion. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's it's really important. And it becomes one of those things that leads to some of his healing. The other thing that jumps out at me is he talks about gratitude, which again, I think is another thing that we've talked about here. There is a lot of really good research that backs that up. Just having a daily practice of gratitude is really, really helpful Mm -hmm. for people because what I call it is you set your eyes on the negative, which is easy to do because we're kind of programmed that way. It's how we survive. And one of the things that gratitude does whether it's either a gratitude journal, I think he mentions that he uses prayer, which Mm -hmm. is to me, prayer is, I think, really a meditative process in a Mm -hmm. lot of ways, because you're really focused. But so he incorporates that meditative process with uh, gratitude. And it becomes very powerful, because at the end, you know, when he says, please find ways to practice compassion, please find something to to be grateful for Mm -hmm. really, really important things for people out there who are listening, who might either know someone who is contemplating suicide or they themselves have contemplated it and Mm -hmm. practice mindfulness. Again, that to me, that's just another way to talk about meditative process, what, you know, whatever way you want to incorporate it. So a lot of the things he's talking about, are things that we've mentioned in previous episodes. Then the other one, he talks about his relationship with, you know, his concept of God. And I think that there are many people out there who will have a different concept, but the idea Mm -hmm. of a higher power, you know, whatever you consider that to be, that higher power can be really important. It really can. I I think there is uh, so much to learn and glean from his writing. I mean, it, I've got read all over my copy just because of all the things that really stood out to me that said, yeah, that is. So he, he went through a very hard time looking into the abyss, which is often the way people describe it. I think it mm-hmm. must feel that way. 
Yeah. But then doing these things, these concrete things, these practices that it sounds to me like he makes an effort to do every single day. Mm-hmm. He has to be that, very diligent about his mental health and self-care is which the way I think he we, describes it. Mm-hmm. I think maybe we should all be more diligent about our mental health and self-care. But Absolutely. I think it's tr- it's certainly truly important for those people who are contemplating suicide. So those are my thoughts mm-hmm. on what he said. And and again, I really appreciate him being willing to share that with everyone. It truly is an amazing thing that he is willing to do this. And I hope that it helps and it reaches a lot of people because it gives a very unique insight into someone who is feeling suicidal in a way mm-hmm. that you don't get mm-hmm. unless you've been through it. And not very many people are willing to be this open and this vulnerable about it. Right, to talk about it, because there's a fair amount of shame and stigma attached to it. And Mm -hmm. so he overcame that. And I think I said this before, the thing about shame is if you open it up, you know, shine the Mm -hmm. light on it, that gets rid of the shame. Yeah, yeah, it really does. And I have known him and his wife since our college days. We all went to college together and that's how we all met. And man, talk about an incredible family. And they have four kids together. And I know that him and his wife, they really genuinely have a lot on their plate. Mm -hmm. And I also want to take a minute to acknowledge his wife and the burden that she bears. This is true for anyone who is aiding someone who is suffering from mental health. Often those people are overlooked, which is kind of makes sense because it's really easy for this really big, loud problem that genuinely needs a lot of attention to overshadow. But Mm -hmm. she is an incredible woman and she has incredible strength to every day bear the burdens that she does from taking care of her four kids to supporting her husband through Mm -hmm. these difficult times. And so I just want to take a minute to acknowledge not only this individual, but all those who are supporting someone going through mental health struggles. It's a big burden and it feels really thankless, but I am taking this moment to thank you for doing it. My husband has been in that situation where he has had to provide me with additional support through my bad mental health days. And it's a lot and it's a big job and it's an important job and you are seen and you are heard and you are appreciated. Right. And so I think that for, we might call them caretakers, you know, people who care and take, you know, are concerned about someone that they love. Mm -hmm. It's, I think the writer of this piece really talks about it at the end about what you can do. It's about having compassion. See, Mm -hmm. if you know someone who is suffering, step beyond the empathy and sympathy by stepping in to what he calls genuine compassion. Absolutely. I, I really agree with that. And I think that often it's hard for us if we're sitting with someone who says they want to end their life, it's mm-hmm. really hard to go into it and listen to them. I think I've used these words, you deep dive into it. Don't mm-hmm. be afraid to dive into it. It doesn't mean you're saying, oh yeah, go ahead and kill yourself. That's not what it means. No. What it says is I care enough about you that I am going to go in and I'm going to try and be in there with you. And mm-hmm. I'm going to have that compassion and but the first thing is I want to understand it. And just like you said, it's about being seen and heard and to be understood and have compassion. 
Mm-hmm. And it's normal and okay if it makes you really uncomfortable. And yeah. it's probably yeah. going to. The idea of someone you know and love killing themselves, it's uncomfortable. It's and really it sh- uncomfortable, yes. And it should be. But just sit with that feeling. Just sit with it and just press through it because it's so important to validate the pain that this person is in. And the best thing you can do is, like you said, if they have a plan already in place, is to get them to a safe space. But if you live with this individual, I think the absolute first thing you do is you take away any and all means of self-harm. If you have guns, you lock it up, you get it out of the house. Uh, Knives, take away your knives. Adrian and I talked about that in our episode of suicide prevention, the idea of someone using a knife for suicide, maybe not as common, but I mean, if someone is really like in this instance of the story that we talked about or the story that we just read in this instant, yeah, lock away the knives, lock away the medication. The medication, yeah. But also do not be afraid to take them to a safe place, meaning a psychiatric a facility because mm-hmm. he was how long was he in there i can't remember it was less than a week less than a week just and less so than a week yeah that first night is really horrendous i mean i understand mm-hmm. what he's saying and i i have never been there as in a psych ward as a patient i've been there as a psychologist and it's it can be pretty bleak but what mm-hmm. really changed it for him was community and compassion yeah and he's safe and so, mm-hmm. you know, in order to get to the, the place of community, compassion, and him learning all those things that he does now, you have to be safe. And so yeah. I can't stress that enough. Do not mm-hmm. be afraid. Even if the person says, I will hate you forever if you take me here. Fine. You can hate me forever. I'm going to keep you safe. We'll deal with the aftermath of that later. Yeah. And remember, they're in intense emotional pain. And so they're going to say anything they can to try and get out of it. You can't take it personal. You have to just understand that this is a crisis moment. Right. And I think sometimes if we fear for their safety, we have to take control. Absolutely. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. And I know that's maybe easier, particularly with a teenager. Mm -hmm. I know that if they are a teenager, I mean, you can as a parent say, we are doing this right? and you can take them to someone and you can check them in. Can you do it against their will if they're under age? Yes. Yeah, okay. You can, because you're the one who's going to sign for them. Okay. And yeah. So yes, you can. If they're, yeah. So if it's in terms of a parent minor situation. Yeah. yeah. Then you so, can with an adult, it's a little bit more complicated like if you're afraid for the safety and in extreme cases, you can call the police and the police will have to take the person up to the ward and then they'll have an interview. Okay. And then even based on the interview, what the clinician thinks, you can put them on a 72 hour hold, which means okay. they don't, they don't have the choice. Okay. Um, you know, we, we have set in, mo- in place a mechanism by which we can keep, keep people safe, even if they choose not to do that. Which is good information because I'm imagining someone actually has a gun. They're ready to do it. They're right there. You somehow managed to talk them down off that ledge, so to speak. 
you call 911, you do whatever you can to restrain that right. person, and they're going to end up in a facility right. on a 72-hour hold. And that's okay, because at least mm -hmm. it gets some stabilized. So if you yes. think about, again, I think in this narrative that you read, I think what he talks about is being stabilized by the medication, mm -hmm. which is what, in my mind, that's really one of the better things that happens in mm -hmm. a psychiatric facility is you can get some stabilization. Right. Get them to a place where they're not going to die is yeah. really what it comes down to. That's good information. And I think important to talk about. So let's say you've gone through the whole suicidal ideation. You've maybe had a, a failed, hopefully failed suicide attempt. What's your next step? You've, you're home from the hospital. What are the next steps you and your loved ones take? So again, I think we go back to this narrative that you read in that he did something concrete. He came up with a plan. Mm -hmm. I think the elements of his plan are really important and really good, but yes. I think it can be different for everyone. Mm -hmm. But I think if you go home and you don't do anything different or you don't have a plan in place, either a therapist or, you know, he talks about having a therapist, but uh, in a lot of ways, it's his daily practices mm -hmm. that really make the difference. And so you've got to do something different. Mm -hmm. You can't just go home and sit down and think, okay, this is going to be different just because now I'm, I'm uh, stabilized on medication. Medication is not the end answer. It's no. the, it, medication is a way to keep you safe, I think. Mm -hmm. And for some people, they're on some medication long-term, but I think ultimately, really, what you need is a change in behavior. And again, he outlines some really good changes. So that's what I would say. You've got to okay. come up with a plan. Now, most psychiatric wards are not going to let you leave unless you have a plan. And often part of one of the elements of that plan is you've got to be, they'll hook you up with a therapist if you don't already mm -hmm. have one. They want to know. And in fact, for a lot of them, it's about setting up, here's your first appointment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I'm going to follow up to make sure you go to that first appointment. Okay. So I think the absolute worst thing that you can do is go home and pretend like it didn't happen. That is not a healthy thing to do because it did no. happen. And if you do that, you know, like you bury your head in the sand, then the likelihood that you end up in the same place eventually is pretty high. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think you go home, you address it. I don't know that you need to share it the way he did, although this right. was in, this was important to him. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not suggesting that sharing it like this is an important step in everyone's recovery because it's mm -hmm. not. It was meaningful for him. But I think if you go home and you you can't hide it with those who are close to you, yes. I think it's really important to be able to share it and say, I am struggling with this and I need your help. And let's come up with a plan that you can help me follow. But going back to compassion, compassion and gratitude. Yeah, I actually set a New Year's resolution for the year 2020. My New Year's resolution was to find one thing to be thankful for every day. Turned out to be a really good year to do it. Yes. <laughs> was, yeah. With COVID. But yeah, it was. Yeah, it was, was 2020. And I wish I could say that I stuck it out for the whole year, but I made it through July and then we moved cross country and it got lost in the move. But Well, you can pick that up, Liz, anytime. <laughs> I know I, I should, I, I always need to, but I noticed a big difference and it's really helpful just to get in that mindset of finding one thing every day that was positive. And I did it at the end of the day or 
Sometimes I would do it the following day. And some days it was hard. Some days there didn't seem to be a lot good that happened. And some days I really had to stretch and find something positive that happened that day. I've got three kids. And, yeah. <laughs> and in particular, <laughs> yes. this was, this was a really vicious, ugly cycle where my less than one year old was, oh, at this time he was like between the ages of six to 10 months and he should be starting to sleep better. And he wasn't oh, and that was lack of sleep. Yeah. Right. Which as That's we know, makes tough. every, yeah, everything makes everything worse. worse. Everything yeah. Worse. And so that was really helpful for me. And there were days where it's like, I don't know, I just felt like I was in a, a haze of misery and exhaustion, fatigue, and trying just to function. And so I'm going to restate this again, because I think there's a reason why this works. Mm -hmm. We are naturally drawn to focus on the negative. Mm -hmm. And what gratitude does is it shifts our gaze to the positive. Yep. So that's why yeah. it works. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So this has been fantastic. This is a really good conversation. And I would encourage you